0: From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, treating anisometropic amblyopia without patching.
1: Historically, what people have done has been to prescribe the optimum spectacle prescription and then either simultaneously or soon after that prescribe some form of occlusion. And so we see our patients get better. And I think that occlusion has always been the therapy regimen or the part of the therapy regimen that everybody assumes is responsible for the improvement in visual acuity.
0: First, this the accreditation council for continuing medical education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Sue Cotter declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Last week, we heard from David Wallace about a two-hour patching regimen for treating amblyopia. Certainly, less patching time should mean more compliance, but do we really need patching at all? Dovetailing with David Wallace's study, Sue Cotter investigated spectacle correction as monotherapy for anisometropic amblyopia. I'm delighted to have her today to discuss this important study. How common is anisometropia as an etiology for amblyopia? Anisometropia
1: by itself is a fairly common cause. We think that that perhaps approximately one-third of patients have strabismus only, one-third have anisometropia only, and one-third have combined strabismic and anisometropia. And that's based on, however, clinical populations. We don't know for sure in terms of a population-based study, but it, it is common.
0: Traditionally, what role has refractive correction as monotherapy played in the treatment of anisometropic amblyopia?
1: Yeah. Traditionally, I don't think it has, has played a strong role. You know, if you think of amblyopia therapy, everybody always says that occlusion and patching in particular is the mainstay or the cornerstone of therapy. And I think that's what people are taught in school and in during their fellowships and their residencies that, you know, patching or some form of occlusion is, is really, that's what, what gets, what improves visual acuity. So, Basically, historically, what people have done has been to prescribe the optimum spectacle prescription and then either simultaneously or soon after that prescribe some form of occlusion. And so we see our patients get better and I think that occlusion has always been the therapy regimen or the part of the therapy regimen that everybody assumes is is responsible for the improvement in visual
0: acuity. Sue, so can I have you describe the design of your study?
1: Okay. So basically, this is a, um, a prospective multicenter study where we enrolled children three to six years of age who all had untreated anisometropic amblyopia. So they had never been treated with, with anything, with patching, with glasses. They were fresh new amblyopes in terms of treatment. And what we did is we examined them, determined that they indeed had anisometropic amblyopia, um, determined what their refractive error was with the psychoplegic refraction, and then we provided the optimal refractive correction based on the specific guidelines that was provided to the patient. And when they came in at the baseline visit, They didn't wear the the, the glasses before baseline. So at baseline, we put their glasses on, measured their acuity that was baseline, and then we followed them out at five week intervals and measured their visual acuity to see what type of improvement we would see with spectacle correction only. And we followed them either until visual acuity stabilized it no longer improved or amblyopia resolved.
0: What were the main outcome measures?
1: So the main outcome measure, we looked at maximum improvement and best corrected visual acuity in the amblyopic eye, that was one. And the second one was the number or proportion of children whose amblyopia resolved. And, and that was with refractive correction alone. And we defined resolution as uh, intraocular difference of one line or less.
0: Now, this study dovetailed with David Wallace's study.
1: Sure, so, so the study, we call this study our ATS-5 study, and it had two phases. And the first phase was a spectacle phase where children were given spectacles and we followed them to see what type of improvement they would have with spectacles alone. In the second phase, which was David Wallace's his publication, patients were assigned randomly either to two hours of patching and near activities, and continue with spectacles of course, or to a control group that had spectacles only. And that's because there had never been a study that had actually looked at a control group with with no type of occlusion. So I guess you could say a phase one, we were almost, the cohort that I describe in this paper was a, a, only part of the overall study. These were just pure anisometropic amblyopes who had never been treated. Now, some of these patients that in phase one that I'm talking about, They may have shown improvement in visual acuity, or maybe they didn't, but if they still had greater than a two-line difference in intraocular visual acuity and their acuity had stabilized, they then were enrolled into phase two of the study.
0: Your study looked at anisometropic amblyopia. For the purposes of this study, how did you define anisometropia?
1: Anisometropia was greater than or equal to a half diopter of spherical equivalent and or greater than one and a half diopter difference between the eyes and astigmatism. So that was our eligibility criteria for anisometropia.
0: Was there a control group for the study? I, I, I would guess that a control group would really be unethical because it would involve not treating children with anisometropic amblyopia.
1: No, we did not have a control group. So The control work would have been, would had to have been, um, we'll see you back at five-week intervals, but we're not going to give you glasses. We're not going to do anything. And no, that wasn't done. So this was just an observational study on spectacles only, at least this phase one was.
0: So what were your results?
1: Okay, well, the amblyopia improved with optical correction by two lines or greater in 77% of the patients and resolved in at least one-third of the patients. So, um, I mean, those were the, the, main, the main results that three quarters, essentially three quarters of the patients had at least a two-line improvement and at least a third of these patients had resolution of their amblyopia with spectacle correction alone.
0: How long did the improvement continue to go on? When did the patients finally stabilize?
1: In, in terms of how long did the children... How long did they have to wear their glasses in order to to show improvement? There was some variability. So what we did is we measured these kids at five weeks. That was the initial one. So visual acuity continued beyond the initial five weeks of spectacle wear for 48% of the patients. And the longest duration of improvement happened in one patient where we followed that patient for 30 weeks. But kind of to sum it up, the majority... And I'll say majority, and I can give you actually a, a statistic for that. that 83% of the patients stopped improving before 15 weeks. So I think if you look at it from a clinical perspective, then you know most of your patients are going to improve. The, the improvement that they're going to demonstrate from refractive correction alone, if they have anisometropic amblyopia, would happen before 15 weeks. But there was some variability, and you know, 20% of the patients that went longer than that, and one of them improved up to 30 weeks.
0: Half of the children reach their maximal benefit at the end of the first five-week interval. Yes. To what extent is the improvement in acuity attributable to age?
1: You know, we really haven't had any indications of that occurring. I mean, first of all, these kids didn't, didn't get that much older. You know, if we're talking two, three months, that shouldn't make that big of a difference in terms of them being able to... Do the type of acuity measure that we're doing,
0: and in terms of a learning effect,
1: we haven't had any indication with other studies that we've done, even the studies that we did in terms of developing this acuity protocol, the HOTV protocol that we use, that there's much of a that there's you know a considerable learning effect with the children.
0: And what is that protocol, Sue?
1: Well, the protocol that we use it's it's single optotypes that are single letters, they're H-O-T-V, and they're surrounded by crowding bars. And they're presented on a 17-inch computer monitor, computer screen, and it's, the program is run by a Palm Pilot. So basically, all the visual acuity testing is the protocol, you can't make a mistake because there's there's no human error allowed because basically the Palm Pilot, it's programmed, the computer program runs it. And so it's kind of nifty where I start the, the program, the child has usually a matching card in his or her lap, which the letters on them, just in case they're, they don't know their letters well, they can match and point. And so basically the child either points or says a letter out loud. I have the correct letter on my Uh, little palm, it says what's up there. So I don't even have to turn around and look at the screen. So if it says H, basically, I just have to hit correct or incorrect. And it it runs the the algorithm. And the the algorithm goes that it, it, if you want to, I can explain the algorithm if you'd like to know about it. But basically, you can choose to start it at 2100 or 2400. And then when it does, it goes down by lines of acuity, in its screens. And so as long as the child, so say it screens at 100, then it screens at 2080, then it goes down to 20, 2070 or whatever the next line is. And as long as the child gets that right, it keeps on going. As soon as the child makes a miss, then what it does is it jumps up two lines or two lines, larger lines of visual acuity, and now it starts testing threshold acuity. And so it presents four presentations of these single optotypes that are surrounded by counter-interaction bars and presents them. And as long as a child gets three out of four correct on that particular line, they're given that line of acuity. The last time that they, the next time where they, they only get, they get less than three out of four correct, what the program then does, it goes to reinforcement stage. So that's considered phase one. And then it reinforces, and what that means is it goes up, once they don't get a line of acuity, it gives them larger lines of visual acuity. It goes up three lines, and and basically, idea there is to get the child on on task. You know, maybe they're they're getting tired, maybe they're getting bored, maybe it's getting too hard. So give them something easy to do, reinforce them. yeah, you're doing great! Ooh, that was easy, that was easy, and then it comes down and it tests threshold visual acuity again. So the last line that they were not able to obtain at least three out of four correct responses, it gives them that line again. And if they do achieve, they're able to identify at least three or four out of that line, then they get that line of acuity and it goes down to the next smaller line. So basically they have two chances at threshold. And then the computer determines, you know, that the acuity level that the child is given is the the last, the best of the two thresholds. And that just pops up on your palm then and it says, you know, 2032 or 2025.
0: How long does this testing take typically?
1: Sounds long, but it really isn't. It takes a few minutes. And the hardest part about the testing is when you get to very small acuity levels that little kids sometimes, they don't want to be wrong. So they they say, oh, I can't see it. And so the the biggest thing you have to do is encourage them to guess. So that's okay. I want you to guess, try hard, you know, go, go, rah, rah. But it's only a few minutes. And it's actually, the more you do it, the easier it is. And kids are... Even though the child might not know his or her letters, it's a very easy task for them because those four letters, H-O-T-V, if you flip them backwards, they're the same letter, and they have this matching card in their lap. So some of these kids won't say a word. They just point to the letters, and you just look down at what they're pointing at.
0: Have other studies looked at spectacles as monotherapy?
1: There's been some suggestions in the literature, and it's usually not a study specifically looking at it, but say a larger study where you know, their retrospective or their, you know, case reports, and, and the author would say, you know, we we, we observed this happened in, in some of our patients that had anisometropic amblyopia. So it's been like suggestions in the literature, but no papers that have looked at it specifically until recently, and there is a a paper prior to ours by Stewart et al., which is a group in the U.K. that published a paper looking at spectacle correction alone for all three types of amblyopia, strabismic, anisometropic, and combined mechanism, and they did an observational study they, and, where they watched these kids about 16 weeks or so and reported improvement with refractive correction alone, and they actually termed it refractive adaptation is, is what they coined it, this this thing. In terms of anisometropic amblyopia, I think that Stewart had approximately 18 patients is what she reported on in her study. So it was a, a smaller number of patients. However, our results were very similar, you know, with our larger number of
0: patients. Can I get you to describe the improvement plateau seen in some patients?
1: Sure. So, so when we designed this study, nobody really had a, a you know, you don't know, what's going to happen in terms of improvement in visual acuity so we thought as an investigator group that if we did visits every five weeks that if we saw a kid five weeks ago and we saw them five weeks later and measured their visual acuity and they hadn't improved and what we did as part of the protocol was actually two measures so if they hadn't improved they had another measure of visual acuity so they had two chances to show improvement And if they hadn't improved at least one line, that they were probably done. That was it. Whatever happened or didn't happen with spectacles, game over. And so that's that's how the study was designed. And with the study, we were able to find out, and mostly because of some of our patients who had plateaued and still had amblyopia, who then were randomized into the clinical trial portion of this study, half of them stayed in the control group. And so the idea was, the thinking was that none of them would improve because they had already maxed out. That was a control group and we found is you know a significant proportion of these patients showed further improvement.
0: With just spectacles?
1: With just spectacles and so we thought that was it. They weren't going to improve at all. This was a control group and so and and I'm sure as David Wallace talked about, um, what we found then in that randomized clinical trial is our control group improved visual acuity too because we didn't anticipate that happening. So it seems that either, you know, we, we don't know why. Is it because some, maybe kids were improving, but since we had to show a one-line improvement, maybe they were improving three-quarters of a line, but we couldn't measure that, and so we didn't know there was some improvement. You know, there were smaller incremental improvements that we couldn't measure. Maybe it is that some kids shown improvement, and they do plateau, and then with continued treatment they pick up and show further improvement. And so I don't know, you know, either of those can be true or both of those, but we do now know that five weeks is not a sufficient length of time.
0: Looking at your data, are there any predictive factors that would suggest who will most benefit from spectacles as monotherapy?
1: Well, we've looked at uh, a couple things in particular, and one thing that's always interesting is age, because, you know, historically eye care providers have always felt that age is a significant prognostic factor for amblyopia treatment. And we did not find that there was any relationship between age and improvement in visual acuity from spectacle correction alone in this paper. And, it's, and, and we haven't found that to be very predictive in, in our other studies as well. We did, however, find that predictors that did it. there were things that had a relation showed a relationship and that was baseline amblyopic eye visual acuity and the degree of anisometropia and so in terms of baseline amblyopic eye visual acuity it was the children who had moderate amounts of amblyopia or moderate degrees of amblyopia who did better on this treatment regimen than those with more severe amounts of amblyopia And I'll define moderate the way we defined it was 2040 to 2100 amblyopia. Those kids did better than the kids who had worse than 2100 visual acuity. The other thing that was a predictor, and I think most people might expect this, was the degree of anisometropia with the children who had lesser amounts of anisometropia doing better with refractive correction alone.
0: How have these findings changed how you yourself practice?
1: Well, they've actually had a profound effect on me personally. And that is I used to be I was a clinician who you come in, you bring you know, I see a patient, they have amblyopia, and right away I'd say, This is a treatment regimen, you know, we we need to give a refractive correction, I'm gonna write your prescription for that, and then I'm gonna start patching so many hours a day, you know, and this is we're gonna start, you know, I might see them back when they got the right when they got their glasses, but then I'd start patching right away. And now basically what I'm doing is I'm telling parents there's there's a couple steps to the process, and the first step is we put on put on the optical prescription, and we're going to have you wear it, your child wear it for a while, and we're going to see if we get an improvement. And as long as your child demonstrates improvement, I'm going to see you back, and I'll see you back in five or six weeks. He or she still shows improvement, I'm going to see you back in five or six weeks. Then you know if. I don't see an improvement after a certain period of time. Then we'll sit down and we'll talk about some form of occlusion, whether it's going to be patching or atropine. So I'm really doing it a step at a time instead of kind of throwing both treatment regimens at them simultaneously.
0: Are the patients for whom you do just go straight to patching therapy, let's say that the amblyopic eye is only seeing 2150 or the anisometropia is particularly large?
1: I have to answer two different ways. And, and, um, And one is because... I'm actively involved in all of these amblyopia treatment studies. So right now we've got three ongoing protocols at my institution. And so almost, I shouldn't even say almost, but all of our amblyopic patients, we try to, you know, we offer for them to join one of our studies. And the way that our studies work right now, we have to have them in spectacle correction and follow them until we have visual acuity stability before they can be randomized. And so I have to watch them in glasses if they're going to, if they have any interest in enrolling in the studies. Okay. However, what if I have a patient that comes in and says, uh, I'm anti-researchers. No way you're going to ever talk me to be in a research project. I just want to be treated right now. So I don't care what you're doing in your studies. I'd still watch them. And I think that there's no indication right now that there's this, this magic or this, this window or this door that's going to shut. If I don't treat you, you know, by this age, boom, you know, the door's shut, I can never treat you again. So I don't have that feeling of urgency. Like we, we might've had previously because we're not finding a strong age effect in our, in our other studies. And we've, we've seen treatments been successful in our, our teenagers. And so I don't have a sense of urgency. And the reason I take it a step at a time, even, you know, you gave the example of, you know, maybe it's not modern amblyopia, it's more severe amblyopia, and maybe it, there's a, a higher level of anisometropia, is because if the patient does show an improvement with refractive correction alone, it's much easier to get them to do occlusion when they have better visual acuity. And so it's, it's easier to patch if you have 2100 than it is if you've got 2200. It's just easier to do it. And so that's a reason. And then the other thing, I think from a, a, a parent's perspective, and the child as well, is sometimes it's just easier to do one treatment at a time. It's a lot of information to take in. You know, you've just, your child's been identified. They have this unequal refractive air. And now they need glasses and they need patching. And I think it's so much, and you, you, you're throwing around these terms, anisometropia, amblyopia. And it's a lot of information for a parent to take in all at one time. And so I think I've seen that now that I'm doing this stepwise process, it just seems that, that it's easier on the parent if I say, we're just going to start with step one and it's going to be glasses and I'm going to follow you. We'll talk about step two later. And they really seem to, to like, like not having to talk about step two right away. So, for two re- so even with my non-study patients, I'm still doing glasses alone up front. That's how it's changed my practice.
0: Given the improvement plateau you observed in some patients, when do you know it's time to begin to patch?
1: And I don't have the the answer to that question, but based on based on what I've seen with the results of this study, you know I would be comfortable following someone for you know say ten ten to fifteen weeks you know and and so I guess what I'm saying if they don't show improvement after five weeks, am I going to throw in the towel? Probably not. Okay, I might go a little bit longer. And I think it's really going to depend on the patient. I think that, you know, when you don't see an improvement after five weeks, I would really probably expect to see that on almost all of my anisometropic amblyopes. And when you don't, you always wonder about compliance. You know, your diagnosis, is my diagnosis right? Did I miss something? Is my fraction correct? And are they complying with treatment? And so those are three things that I would, you know, make sure that's all okay. And then maybe follow them for another five weeks. And if I didn't get any improvement then, at that point, then for sure I would start some treatment. I think it also depends on, you know, just like anything else you prescribe for a patient, I think you're influenced by by the vibes that you're getting from the parent. And so if I had a parent that I was getting vibes that, hey, you know, we got to get the show on the road here, I'd be more apt to start some form of occlusion sooner than a parent who was like, you know, that's okay, we can wait a little bit longer.
0: What should our expectations be in the context of our own practices when treating anisometropic amblyopic kids with spectacles as monotherapy?
1: We have to look at the patients, you know, that we had in the study. So one thing I would say is that remember that these were untreated patients. So they hadn't had form of treatment. they hadn't been wearing glasses before. This isn't some kid who's been wearing glasses and now you're just seeing them for the first time. So they're they were untreated children from three to six years of age. And pure and amblyopia, so there's no associated strabismus. But in this group, we're seeing that resolution, which was defined as one line or less, difference between the two eyes, in at least a third of the patients. And so that's what I say that you could expect. And in terms of if just like what's the the mean improvement, the mean improvement, and of course that's an average, you know, was was three lines of improvement from refractive correction alone.
0: So is there anything that you'd like to add or any final words of advice for us?
1: I think one thing from the, well, you're asking about practitioner, and that is, you know, what is the optimum refractive correction? And so what I would like to do is suggest guidelines for that, and one is that these children have all had a cycloplegic refraction. We use 1% cyclopanolite, so that's what we're, we're, we're collecting our refractive data from. And then in terms of prescribing, the guidelines that we use, what we consider to be an optimum refractive correction is we give a full correction for any astigmatism, a full correction of myopia, and a full correction of anisometropia. And so if the child has three doctors of anisometropia, we prescribe three doctors of anisometropia. Now, what some eye care providers are concerned about, especially with the anisometropic amblyopes, is, well, do I have to give the child full plus optical correction? I'm afraid that if the sound eye is wearing a full plus optical correction, the child's going to reject the glasses because they're going to be blurred. And so if you want to cut the plus in the hyperopic eye, sound eye, that's fair game. You can do that. Just make sure you cut it equally. So what I'm saying, if you need to cut the plus by a diopter or two diopters in the sound eye, make sure you keep them balanced. And so those are the guidelines that, that we've used for this study. And, and I think that's important because that's the, you know, the op, what we're considering to be the optimum refractive correction.
0: Sue Cotter, thank you very much. Well, thanks. Sue Cotter is a professor at the Southern California College of Optometry and research professor at USC. Her paper, Treatment of Anisometropic Amblyopia in Children with Refractive Correction, appears in the June 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Cotter or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.